Promotional consideration paid for by the following. Hey, bro. It's Russo'sBrand.com. Get the real shoot for the most controversial personality in pro wrestling, Vince Russo. Stevie Richards Fitness. Hey, don't you think it's time for a band new you? Head over to StevieRichardsFitness.com and join the SRF resistance today. ProWrestlingTees.com. Get the coolest merchandise from your favorite independent pro wrestling talent worldwide. Head over to ProWrestlingTees.com and support indie wrestling today. Bro, if you're a real coffee lover, then you've got to try Broaster's Limited Edition Vince Russo Bro Coffee. Available right now at www.thebroasters.com. This limited edition coffee is fresh roasted weekly and shipped directly to your door. You will love the Nicaraguan blend with roasted chocolatey notes when you smell it. Get your Vince Russo Bro Coffee today at thebroasters.com and follow them at Coffee Broasters today on Twitter. Enjoy the best coffee today, bro. From Broasters, Vince Russo Brand, and Hameen Media Group. Infidels, I've greenlit my latest cell, and it's the War on Morons podcast. That's right, the world's full of morons, but I've sent Jay and Anissa to declare war on them. From the stupid criminals to those Florida man stories you love, and the other idiots of Hollywood and D.C., these new Hamid soldiers speak the truth, the stupidity in a fun and comical manner. Each week, these two will be bringing on friends and all these crazy characters to give you the punk rock comedy news show you didn't even know that you needed. But you have it now that you're under quarantine. You will listen, infidels. And that's right, there's a bit of uncertainty every week from the live hotline, so you never know who's going to call into the show. <laughs> so plant your flag in the sand, grab your friends and suit up, because the War on Morons has commenced, infidels. Visit them now and subscribe at the War on Morons. .podbean.com YOLO <laughs> The following program is presented by the HTM Podcast Network Feel, feel but frustration Treasury With no documentation Disease Live through Lord Will you witnesses No one testifies Well I'm the cardio disease Rage burns a brand new degree You train your mouth With mistrust Now it's time to Watch Fuck you And all your insecurities Be my taste To test my abilities Every creature dug your hole too deep Stretching the walls Now escape It's too steep Ready with the bows Get out of my way Run with the bulls It's Tuesday, April 21st, 2020, and you are tuned into Running with the Bulls, Episode 1, here presented by the HTM Podcast Network Online, HittingTheMarks.com, Hameen Media Online, HackerHameen.Podbean.com, and now the hot tag. 
Which, Rick, I would give out the website address, but I don't know what it is off the top of my head. But yeah, it's the two Huckleberries. We've been reunited here to talk about this, uh, the last dance, the last run of the Chicago Bulls. For those who don't know, my name is Jargo. I will be your host for the day. That's my tag team partner. He's the man, the myth, the legend. He's the real RBV. Rick. What? Yo, don't be tripping. It's me, it's me. It's Ricky Pippen. When it comes to those hot takes, I am coming at you from deep downtown three. And if you disagree, you get that lockdown D. Fantastic. Absolutely tremendous. Uh, Rick had hit me up a couple of days ago, wanted to know if I would be interested in reviewing these shows. And I said, yes, absolutely. I, I'm very much looking forward to this. Um, Rick, I guess before we even talk about this documentary, I just kind of want to get your, your overall thoughts. I mean, we've seen episode one. We've seen episode two. There was a whole lot of other people that also saw episode one and episode two. 6.1 million viewers, in fact. What did you think of the first two episodes of The Last Dance? Right, uh, going into this thing, you know, when I reached out to you, I, I felt a little uh, shorted. You know, that, you know, how we kind of went out there, especially with the hashtag HTM sports and, and how fitting would it be, you know, this, the, the last dance, the running with the bulls to make this our last ride uh, of sorts. It's, we've always agreed we're going to get together for these special projects like that, like this. And I can't imagine anything more special, more over the top than with just what five week epic documentary, two hours each and every time out of this thing, the excitement, the buzz around this thing. This is what's so incredible about this. And Obviously, they they move this thing up weeks to get this thing, this product out there to the masses because the the desire, that fire, the demand that is there for for sports inside of itself. Something that from hell, what are we looking at here? 20 plus years ago, this dynasty put together in Chicago that rejuvenated and, and reinvented the game of professional basketball and really took the NBA to that next level. You know, put it up there truly in the conversations with with the top games. I mean, it's where they surpassed the NHL and the Major League Baseball. And we're right there on the at the time. Hell, they were arguably bigger than the NFL. Yeah. And it really all the nucleus of that the core of everything was right there in Chicago around this dynasty. And people were they were hungry for this. They're excited. And obviously, this is a very hot topic that we wanted to get together and talk about. So it's all that energy. Everything going into this, I, I was pumped. Over the edge, I was looking at the clock all day on Sunday, waiting for this thing. And I got to say, it absolutely delivered. I, I love the production style in this. I love how they told, you know they put out the stories. I lo- loved how they laid out the groundwork for the major players that you know I'm, I'm assuming that we're going to see kind of be the catalyst to guide us through this narrative. And a little bit of teases in there that I think we're going to get down the line. From if it is that outlandish personality that we're going to get next week in the introduction of a Dennis Rodman to even those, uh, I don't see the bit players, but the featured players, if you will, like in an, a Saxton or a Bill Cartwright or uh, a Kukoc, any of those that were so instrumental in all the great success that they had there in Chicago. Yeah, one of my favorite guys to listen to throughout the documentary was actually Steve Kerr. And as now we know Steve Kerr as draped inside of the, the, the Golden State Warriors colors every time that you see him. And he's he's kind of a left wing nut job, but he's a hell of a basketball coach. People forget that he was a member of those teams. I mean, you can almost hear just a little bit of coach speak coming out in Steve Kerr in, in a couple of those clips. And I think what's he's going to be very instrumental in the success of this project, because as you, as you put out there, he's here, he's a player. 
He's under, you know, he's out there on the floor working his ass off. But that's where he's starting to kind of formulate this gift that he has, you know, working the bench and how to handle an over the top roster that he has in Golden State. All of that is you got to believe is rooted here in Chicago. You're going to see that transition from him and he's going to bridge that gap between, you know, those of us that are living in that moment where that was everything to us to how this newer age, this millennial generation, how they're going to react to the over the top personalities of a Rodman, of a Pippen, of a Michael Jordan, and just kind of the whole dynamic of basketball inside of itself, which is so different from what they know today. Kerr's going to be that bridge. I, I thought it was interesting. You bring up Rodman. One of my favorite spots in this entire first two episodes is they introduce Michael Jordan and Jordan sits down and introduces himself. Michael Jordan from such and such North Carolina and Scotty Maurice Pippen from such and such Arkansas. Rodman sits down in the chair and he's like, sup? <laughs> I mean, it's like, good to see you haven't changed at all, Dennis. Nice to see that you're taking this seriously. Uh, before we jump into the actual shows themselves, I do want to talk a little bit, um, about the way that this thing was kind of put together. Uh, this one was directed by Jason air, which those of us inside of the pro wrestling community should know because he directed that fantastic documentary about Andre the giant in 2018. He's also responsible for one of my personal favorite 30 for thirties, the fab five, uh, which to me, very much correlates with this 90s Bulls run. You had the Bulls doing what they were doing in the NBA, and then you had the Fab Five up in Michigan just completely reinvent the game of college basketball, at least the way that it was seen. I agree 100%. And when you're looking you know, from that pro wrestling perspective where our, our roots are planted at, when you any kind of form of entertainment, we're looking for those parallels. And here we have that. We have... Over the over the top characters, tremendous personas. You know they're ve- they're defining the story early on into this thing, and, and plenty of action. If it be from the highlights of what we see on the basketball court to just in their daily lives and how they how they each evolved to get to this point here during this last dance, uh, going for that last championship. I know going into this documentary, you you know as we were talking about it. Just between us, you had some concern. Okay, you know, how are they going to present this? Is it just going to be in that season? You were already wanting more. You wanted to know what it was like when Jordan came into the league and how they put this team together. And I think they did a remarkable job in in that sense of at those key moments, inserting those elements, that backstory to build up to that point where we're in the real time of the documentary. Yeah, the the meat and potatoes of this thing is really the fact that Michael and the Bulls allowed a camera crew to basically follow them all throughout the 97-98 season. So there's a lot of this footage has really been in the can. And that's very much what I thought we were going to get inside of this documentary. I didn't realize they were sitting down and doing interviews with people like Barack Obama, with people like William Jefferson Clinton, with, with you know Roy Williams, Michael Wilbon, like the, the the people that they brought in for this documentary to talk about the footage that they already had. I thought was fascinating. Roy Williams, one of the MVPs of those first two episodes. Yeah. And everybody that's ever listened to us, if it's, you know, hashtag HCM sports or the hitting marks pro wrestling podcast or Mondays in the locker room that they know that, you know, where I kind of lean towards to the right. But I got to tell you, it was kind of cool in that moment to to see former President Obama, you know, who is so 
entwined in the community and society inside of Chicago where he was a community planner, where he got his start. And a huge basketball fan, like a well-documented huge yes, basketball fan. Absolutely. You've, you've got to believe and know it that back then, you know, this was like, this was life to him. He was probably, you know, overly invested into this thing. And, you know, to see someone of that magnitude taking the time to talk about how uh, incredible of a run and, and what these figures even meant to him, it, it's quite impressive. And Bill Clinton came off as your creepy uncle that, you know, saw Scottie Pippen play when he was in high school. And I told you he was really going to be something, you know, <laughs> like I, I, did, I thought that was just kind of out of place. All right, go ahead. Go ahead and insert Biden memes on Pippen in, on the bench in high school. Oh, fantastic! <laughs> I could totally see Joe Biden sniffing Scottie Pippen. Um, but the other thing that really went into this entire thing, there's a lot of talk about LeBron, because Michael finally agreed to let this footage be aired during one of the Cavaliers championship parades. And immediately everybody jumps to this conclusion. Oh, Michael's threatened by LeBron. That's why we're putting this out. No, that's not what's going on here. There are two things that, well, three things that absolutely made this documentary a possibility. Number one, ESPN, when they did that OJ documentary, Made in America, it absolutely put a ton of eyes on the world of sports documentaries and then making a murderer happened. And once making a murderer happened, if you look at the, the trends, the price for these documentaries went through the roof. Rick, this documentary, they had to pay $20 million to make this documentary. That, that, that was split between ESPN. That was split between Netflix. A big chunk of it goes to the NBA. A big chunk of it goes to, well, you know, the 97-98 Bulls. But... Even five years ago, the idea of paying $20 million for a documentary was completely absurd. Oh, documentaries, those were those things on PBS, right? Yeah, basically. Uh, it, you might get you know, a historical documentary over on the History Channel, something like that, but not in the world of ESPN or the major sports networks or anything like that. Now, absolutely not. But yeah, and you look at the numbers here. Records across the board, uh, especially you know, for ESPN – all time, the most viewed documentary special that they've had. Yeah, which considering some of those 30 for 30s, I mean, like the one about the U, I think is is one of my favorite sports documentaries of all time. The Fab Five was another one that was fantastic. I almost wish that was a 10-part series. I mean, we, we could do an hour just on Chris Webber calling time out. Yeah, across the board, I, I don't, off the top of my head, I can't remember, recall even a 30 for 30 that, you know, that I would put anywhere between like a seven, seven and a half out of 10. Uh, they're all brilliantly put together, very moving. And, and they, they send home that message for you. And you kind of want more. I got a feeling even after 10 hours of this, we're going to want yeah. more. We're going to, we're going to want that unedited director's cut. that could go on for whatever 97 hours. The only, I guess the only gripe I would have about this thing. And I think that they, they missed a major opportunity and you and I have talked about this. They should have taken this thing to open air network. This thing should have been on ABC Sunday night. Yep. Uh, I, I wonder if if maybe there's conversations going on in the Zoom boardroom meetings right now. If they will try to make that move to see that success, you know, going and looking up what they did on for ABC for Sunday night. Uh, 
solid numbers during this block. They didn't lead in any demographic. They weren't near the top of the charts. They were a little bit down in the, in the major networks. But American Idol, yes. I mean, that's been a staple, long-running staple. Uh, I could see moving that, that 8 to 9 block, and then you come in here from 9 to 11 with this Bulls documentary. I mean, th- uh, what else did they had on the, something called The Rookie? I don't believe it was the movie The Rookie. No, I believe it. I believe it's like a cop show. Okay, so we got the rookie. Oh yeah, yeah. It's like the, he's like a fifty-year-old cop. It's a rookie. Yeah. Okay, I've seen. Uh, and then America's Funniest Home Videos. I can't believe that show's still yeah. on the air. Thirty-one years, man. Thirty-one years. But yeah, if they could have taken this thing to the masses with how hungry everybody is, you know, coming out of the gate with this first episode, you're going to have people lining up every which way to to make sure that they can get a Netflix account. That they could get ESPN Plus. That, you know, they can find a way to get just ESPN, any of the networks that you're going to be providing this thing on. That was that's maybe the only thing inside of their marketing strategy where they they missed a major opportunity, especially in this time of uncertainty where you're kind of you're clinging on to anything, the pool and viewerships, and ultimately the advertisers and and everything that goes along with that. I think for the NBA inside of itself, something to watch. It, that maybe we haven't talked about or thought about yet, just kind of coming to mind here. What they're really, you know, they regularly depend on is their merchandise numbers. Yeah. How, how much are these going to skyrocket right now? Right. Yeah. I mean, hell, I got three Michael Jordan jerseys hanging in my closet right now. I've got on the black 23 today. I've got a red 45. Yeah. I actually got one of those. And I also have a white 23, you know, so I almost I I need another red one. I need a red twenty three. What, what what am I? I'm such a slacker. So I, I just got my Pippin that I greatly underpaid for. Oh, I love I like that's such an old school Pippin jersey. It's actually made by Champion. That was the first thing I noticed when we got on cam today. A Champion jersey. I mean, there's something I haven't seen in twenty five years at least. You know. Uh, I dug out a box over at my mom's house. I found like twelve of these things. Uh, across the board. And these are going back to, uh, I had to have been like eighth, ninth grade. And I can still get into these bad boys. Fantastic. Dude, I, I got I got, I got, I got my Pippin here. I've got uh, two Dan Marleys. I got a Barkley. I got a Shaq. I got a Penny. Uh, Kemp. Oh, I, I can't remember. I, I got a whole box of damn things. And we're going to talk about a couple of those guys as we kind of go through this show. Uh, number one, we got to talk about the format of this thing because that's I understand what they're doing, but I'm not necessarily a fan of the format of the show because we're, we're jumping through blocks of time where we'll, we'll go from 1985 to 1997 and then we'll go back to 1986 and then we go back to 1997 And I understand what they're doing and it makes complete sense to me, but especially when we get into the Scottie Pippen episode, which is episode two, there's so much that happened in between a lot of these gaps that kind of fill in the blanks a little bit. And I'm very interested to see how this is all going to kind of pan out. Uh, Let's start off with episode one, because episode one is the Michael Jordan episode. Uh, There's a lot of subplots throughout it. But it's like, if you didn't know who Michael Jeffrey Jordan was, you get a, a quite the idea of who he is throughout episode one. And Rick, th- the thing that really stood out to me as we see Michael Jordan sitting in this giant living room with a glass of Hennessy and a surely a very expensive cigar, we got to see Michael Jordan. 
Like this wasn't the guarded Michael Jordan. This wasn't, I have to protect my brand, Michael Jordan. It wasn't all business. I, I saw Michael Jordan laugh. I think that's the first time I've ever seen Michael Jordan laugh. Yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe it's a, if it's a coming of age that maybe he's eased a little bit around the brand. He feels a little more, I wouldn't say secure in it, but you can definitely tell he's loosened those reins. I mean, we're talking about an individual who back in the day, I mean, he would not conduct an interview unless he had the three-piece suit on. Uh, after you know, following a game, he'd go into the training room, to the shower, get dressed, and then he would welcome in the reporters or the media, whatever the case might be. Before that, you do not approach him or you were cut off. You were done. You, you might as well hang in your press pass. You know, hand in your press pass. It's over for you. And that, that's what it was all about. It was about that presentation always being the utmost professional, so crisp in everything that he delivered. And it was, it was kind of, you took that step back and you had to kind of, okay, is this real? Is this what we're getting here? And he, he seemed very humbled and real. And I don't know, you know if that was by design to give him a connect to a modern audience, because when you get into who is Michael Jordan, you're looking at that surface. It, I think it tells a very different story. He's hard nosed. He's stubborn, maybe selfish at times, but you have to, you know, peel back those layers and dig a little bit deeper. I think the more that you feel that stubbornness, that, that selfishness, that you know how hard headed he can be. That that inside of itself tells you about that fire inside of him. And that drive, that desire to be the ultimate best that he could potentially be. And there was nothing going to stop him. You could put any mountain, any obstacle in his way. And Jordan preferred it that way. The bigger, the badder, the better. Because he was going to come out on top of that. And he was going to be, you know, raise that bar, become that measuring stick. In today's sports atmosphere, I mean, he would be going to the press. He'd be going to social media, especially, you know, off, you know, the seven minutes They're sitting there on that stopper. He'd be running to the press and the media. No, he used that to fuel. Okay. Give me seven minutes. This is going to be the most amazing seven minutes you've ever seen. And I don't, you know, I'm not going to ask for to get out of here. I'm not looking for greener pastures. This is my team, my city. I'm doing this. I don't care if you're the owner, the GM, a teammate, you're not stopping me from getting there. And, and that's the mentality of a Michael Jordan. I'm I'm happy that you bring them up because it's a perfect segue. The the other people that I thought were really featured in episode one were the two Jerry's. Of course, I'm talking about Jerry Krause and Jerry Reinsdorf, the owner of the Bulls and the general manager. Um, when Jerry Krause came in, Jerry Reinsdorf was told by people throughout the league, don't touch the guy. And Rick, one of the things that really stood out to me as I'm watching this thing and, and a little bit of context that we have to provide for some of our younger listeners this is when the owners ran the league. It's not like it is now. You don't have players dictating, I'm going to go here and I'm going to form the super team and then I'm going to go over here and I'm going to launch the mogul stage of my career and then, you know, maybe I'll go play with my friends over here. Like, that wasn't happening in 1997-98. You had the owner, Jerry Reinsdorf, who also owned the Chicago White Sox. And then you had Jerry Krause, who started off as a scout for the Chicago White Sox, who somehow weasels his way into the general manager position for the Chicago Bulls. He didn't draft Jordan. He inherited Jordan, and then he put the rest of the team together around him. But Rick, the, the one thing that really sat uneasy with me 
is the vilification of Jerry Krause throughout this entire thing. And I understand it. And Jerry Krause does deserve all the blame for this team getting broke up in 97, 98. But, you know, in like 1991, 1992, people love Jerry Krause. My question to you is, why are we shitting on the dead and Jerry Krause and we're giving Jerry Reinsdorf a pass because Jerry Reinsdorf had the final say in all of this. He flexes his muscle. He gets on an airplane, flies to Montana to bring back Phil Jackson for one year. But otherwise, he was Jerry Krause's bitch. Like, this doesn't make any sense to me. How come we're giving Reinsdorf a pass? And, you know, and I think... This is more about maybe protecting the lore within Chicago, which, no surprise, overwhelmingly was the score marketplace for viewership inside of this. And this is, you know, for a lot of us, this is something new that they're that they're bringing to the light. But this has been something that has been uh, has been going around for decades in the circles, the sports circles within Chicago. So I really believe it's about protecting that lore at its very base. And as we, we were just talking about, though, this is such tremendous and, the, tremendous and brilliant storytelling. And what do you need there? I mean, you need those key elements. We've got the Zen master. And we're going to talk about Phil, who is really the glue that holds this thing together. You've got those the star players uh, with the Jordan. You've got... That the one is that character is a little lost and confused inside of the Pippin. We're going to be introduced to the rock star in Rodman and, and all of the not ready for primetime players. You need that villain in there. And and I don't know necessarily if it has to do with it. He has he has passed on. It would be nice to see maybe him be able to defend himself, rationalize the moves that he was making here. But you do you could really you can see that being a reality, the situation, uh, he was saving businessman. You know, he worked himself into that position to think that you went from a scouting position, a lower end office job for a baseball team. And now you're running a franchise in the NBA. I mean, albeit the Bulls were dismay. I mean, they, they were the laughing stock at that point. They were damn near the bottom dwellers at the cellar of the league. And, you know, what do you have to lose? In many ways, and make that correlation with professional wrestling, it reminds me when Eric Bischoff convinced, you know, to Turner and them to give him control of WCW. Yeah. I mean, you have this guy that a couple of years ago was getting coffee for Ganya, who is a T, you know, TV guy, comes in and says, hey, we need to rethink this thing. What do we have to lose at this point? Uh, it's kind of like Vince Russo going into Vince McMahon. Look at look at the gates. Look at the ratings. What do we have to lose? We have to do something. We are getting killed here. So you're willing to try anything. And the system they brought in here, it worked. But as we've seen in those examples that you know, I laid out there, as time goes on, it starts to wear a little thin. And it, it starts, maybe you get a little complacent in what's happening there. And I guess here is with the Bulls is, it's human nature that at some point you're going to be like, okay, where's my recognition? I, you know, it's obviously, yes, they're at the, the forefront we're filling these arenas, not just in Chicago, but around the world. I mean, they go international. I mean, it was like the Beatles, you know, had landed. Uh, I mean, that's the craze that they had stirred up around the world. Human nature, you're going to start saying, okay, where's my cut? Right. And I, one of the things that also kind of stands out to me in this whole thing is, like we said, the owners ran the league. 
and people talk about LeBron and I got to take my talents to South Beach and, and hooking up with Wade and Bosch. And that was the beginning of player mobility. I don't think that's the case. I, I, I was really trying to think back on this thing. Did this all start with Shaq? When he forced his way out of Orlando and to Los Angeles, is is that the first time you remember one of these giant star players making that move and saying, no, I'm just not going to play here anymore? Yeah, it, well, maybe where it was so publicized, where it was, he- you couldn't escape it. I mean, there were headlines everywhere. Uh, I guess that bigger picture for all of sports, did it really begin with Shaq? Because now I'm really thinking about where the publicity was there or the spotlight where it was just so evident that, okay, now a star player is using his stroke in that pool to dictate what an ownership group is going to do, where he's going to change the fate of, you know, damn near an entire franchise here simply by just putting his foot down and taking that power away from the ownership groups. I mean, I'm thinking back and even, you know, here in Cincinnati, I know there was what like inside of baseball, you know, now everywhere you go, especially it still rings true with baseball, but it's across everything in sports is when we hear about what somebody has signed for when those contracts went public. And, you know, instead of, OK, now we're looking at our heroes out there on the field. They're, they're giving it for the franchise, for the city. They do this because they love the game. Uh, I remember when Pete Rose's contract went public and it opened up a bunch of individuals eyes, you know, towards him and Charlie Hustle. Like, oh, wait a minute. He's doing this for. Damn near, you know, whatever, hundreds of thousands at that time. But it was, you know, amongst the top in the league. And he left Cincinnati, the hometown West Side kid. I mean, I mean, it was heart wrenching for people here that he would go to Philadelphia and Montreal, obviously come back here. I think, you know, that started that rumbling. But for the magnitude on that level, that stage, uh, especially in a modern era where the player really stepped that line and became a celebrity, a rock star gotta be Shaq it's gotta be he's the first like huge name like that that I remember I mean I remember like Reggie White when he went to Green Bay that was a huge deal yeah you had some of that inside of the world of baseball but Shaq really felt like he swung the power you know know, go ahead sorry I mean we've had like smaller moments but I don't think it had a wide, a league-wide effect like Shaq. I mean, because we yeah. can look at, you know, like Bo Jackson telling Tampa, hey, don't draft me. And he sat out. Uh, so John Elway, you know, with Baltimore, don't do it. I got an option. I'll go play baseball. But it didn't, it, but it didn't open up the floodgates like we'd seen inside the NBA and now across the board in sports. Of course, the story of the 97 Bulls begins in North Carolina, the early days of Mike Jordan. It's so weird to hear people call him Mike Jordan. It's just absolutely bizarre to me. And the North Carolina Tar Heels. And Rick, as you look at Jordan before he even made it to the league, all right, I want you to think about this. He had Dean Smith as his college coach. He had Roy Williams as an assistant coach. And then he goes to play for USA Basketball, where he's coached by Bobby Knight. That's that's three of the greatest coaches of all freaking time. And before he ever plays one day in the NBA, Bobby Knight's like, that's the best player in the world. Like, Bobby Knight just knew right then and there, that's the best player in the world. Was, uh, was, was Coach K an assistant on that USA Basketball team as well, I believe? 
Um, I don't think he started that early. I think he okay, started I, a bit I didn't later was, in the 90s. Okay. I didn't know if he was – all right. So, all right, not that early, but he did have some crossover involvement with him during the Dream Team then. That's, that's, I believe yep. that's what I was, was thinking of there. Uh, but you're right. I mean you have all – I mean think about the influence – and this is going to sound crazy. I don't think it was the influence that they had on Jordan. I think it was the influence Jordan had on them yeah. and how special they realized he was and taught them of what they should go look for when they're recruiting these young talents. Those raw abilities. You know, if you're looking for that prototype, that blueprint, you have it laid out there for you in the means of a Michael Jordan. And that's just not physically. I mean, because they even put this together inside of this documentary. You could tell early on some things weren't there. Even one of the, you know, the stories that we've all heard about Michael Jordan, if anybody from sixth grade to ninth grade has ever tried out for a basketball team, you have heard this. Don't worry, Jordan got cut. You know, that's one of those selling points anywhere that you're gonna hear in basketball. But again, you know, that it didn't he did not let that stop him. You know, how many people at that early age you, you get rejected from something? You're told, okay, you're not up to par at this point, and you and you never go back to it. It's something that's so fickle and that you have to really watch in youth sports that you turn them off to something. But that wasn't embedded in him. That wasn't in his nature. And that's and you see that it has those early points in his life, that drive to go forward. And we continue to see that, you know, right through college. You know, they put you could tell it was all there. All the tools were there, but maybe something early wasn't clicking for him. But he works through that because of that desire. And I think even when he gets drafted and they show up. You know, okay, who the hell is this rookie? He completely is outside of the norm of what it takes to succeed inside of the NBA. He had all the other, you know, the greats, the all-stars at the time. Well, we don't get the hype. This is a big man league. They're going to, they want to run a franchise through this small man. This is never going to work. But they tell you, I said, he might not be getting it right now, but from day one, it was obvious he was the best player in that gym. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, The other thing that I, and I, maybe I knew this and just plain forgot it. I didn't realize that Dean Smith is the guy that convinced him to go pro. I, there's something that you wouldn't see in a 2020 context. A college coach saying to Michael Jordan, no, we, we'd love to have you come back to North Carolina for your senior season, but you should probably go pro. You'll be one of the first couple three picks. That that kind of surprised me a little bit. I, I don't know. It, maybe it's something that society you know, or the media doesn't want us to think about because we're supposed to value and cherish this this four-year process, the education, the life experiences, they know this is a profession. You got an opportunity to go get this, and especially to recognize the talent that somebody like a Michael Jordan has. You want to see them fly. Like, hell, now we got – it's funny, though, that you say that you wouldn't think maybe back then in that context to hear that. Now we've got entire programs built around the one that philosophy. Yes. Yeah. Even the coaches that were against the one and done are now with the one and done because they know that's the only way they're going to be able to recruit. Coach K, he had to adapt to survive in this thing. Yep, absolutely. Same with Dean Smith. I mean, he went through it too. And now Roy Williams. Uh, That's like the motto for Calipari. That's that's, that's the entire recruiting program for Kentucky. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about this 84 draft because this thing is just ridiculous with the exception of Sam Bowie. I, I how how he was the number two pick in this draft I don't understand and that and that's not even a rip on Portland I just don't understand why they took him I you have a Kareem Elijah one goes number one and he should have because like you said it was a big man league at that point and you know Hakeem did all right for himself won a couple of championships and like 
12-time All-Star, a couple defensive players of the year. Then you have Bowie at two, which is just bizarre. Then you have Jordan, Sam Perkins, and Charles Barkley. Oh, yeah, and John Stockton was in that draft, too. I think Stockton went like 16, way down the list. Bunch of teams kicking themselves for that one. But, Rick, we've talked about this, and the Portland Trailblazers have gotten shit for years about not taking Michael Jordan. It makes all the sense in the world. They already had Clyde. Clyde Drexler was already out there playing the same position, but, boy, would... Would Michael have become Michael had he not been in Chicago? If he would have went to Portland, if he would have played alongside Clyde, maybe they move Clyde to a three and Michael at two or Clyde at two and Michael at three. You got to have two wings, right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, and we got to, and that's another thing you have to take yourself and put yourself in that moment and look at the times that surround you and the need for these teams. I mean, it would have been, they would have been the laughing stock of the draft of the league if with Clyde already in that position for you. Hell, let's and let's not bat an eye at Clyde. I mean, we're, as you put over Elijah on there, hell, they teamed up. Yeah, Houston uh, is one of, is one of those maybe early versions of a super team or just anything they could do at that point to to mirror what they had in Chicago. Uh, such to me, the biggest crime in. in travesty of this thing is that Jordan steps away from basketball when that team comes together in Houston. You talk about some epic throwdowns that we could have potentially had. Well, that there. happened twice because I mean, even it, when his second retirement, how much would you have liked to seen that Bulls team stay together and go against the Spurs with Duncan and Robinson? I, I was, I wonder there, that would have been like the, the proverbial passing of the torch. Yeah, absolutely. You know, but, but I, I pulled up here as we're, we're going back to try to put ourselves in that moment for the 84 season draft. Uh, so it makes sense here. As we're talking about it is a big man's league. Everything's running through the blocks. You're posting up. You're, you're banging the boards. That's where you're winning. That's where you're getting to the playoffs, moving towards that championship. And they really thought and if you're in Portland, you've got your perimeter in place. You know, you've got um, Clyde Drexler. Already said here. So you need that big man. So you go with Sam Bowie, probably the best center, second best center on the board there. Would, would you would you have taken Sam over Perkins? Obviously, they saw something there. I don't know. Hindsight twenty twenty. I think I would have rather had Perkland, Perkins or Barkley. Could you imagine Barkley and Clyde teaming up in Portland? You got Kenny Carr inside of your power forward spot. Again, we have to go kind of look at, you know, how did their meetings go? Well, how did they match up? How did they look in those college seasons and all that? It's easy for us to sit here some decades later and saying, wow. Right. You know, and, we're, and we're talking about, you know, if, you know, if Jordan could have been Jordan in a Portland or one of those other markets like that. I mean, it's you get that perfect storm. You know, maybe if he's in a bigger market, he ends up as a New York Nick. Maybe he's even greater than the Michael Jordan that we know today. You never know what could happen. It's just you get that butterfly effect. The The other thing that really stands out out of episode one is the fact that Phil Jackson is actually the man who, <clears throat> excuse me, who came up with the term the last dance because Phil Jackson is told going into the 97, 98 season by Jerry Krause, it doesn't matter if you go 82 and 0, this is your last year in Chicago. They knew that going in. 
I can't imagine how that would play in a 2020 context. Like, could you imagine a couple of years ago if Kevin Durant would have said, listen, guys, this is my last year in Golden State. I'm, I'm not coming back. Let's just go out and let's try to win a championship and then we're going to blow this thing up. Like, what if what if Bill Belichick would have been told by Robert Kraft, hey, it doesn't matter if you go 17 and 0, win the Super Bowl, this is going to be your last year here in New England. Like, th- this would have never happened in a modern context. I don't understand how it happened in 97, 98. And this is what I really loved about the opening parts of this documentary is obviously the focal here is in episode one is around Michael Jordan. And then we go to Scottie Pippen. But what really speaks volumes in introducing how this thing is going to play out is in that very open. Even before we get to general manager and ownership and all that is you lay the true foundation, the glue behind this entire machine. And that is the Zen master. Bill Jackson is I talk about Michael Jordan in that drive and that desire, that fire that he is going to conquer any mountain, any obstacle. Well, Phil, he knows how to put it to work for him. He's not going to look at it as a, a downer. Anyone, he could have taken the ball and go home and just mailed it in at that point. But he realizes, okay, now I'm going to use this for fuel with inside of myself and for this team but maybe not in such an aggressive fashion as Jordan, but how can I put this thing to work for me? We really got to look back at this thing here and say, okay, without this season, without that predicament, without that situation, we'd always think about Phil as the the great coach of that Bulls dynasty, but I think this is that turning point that even elevates him to that next level. That shows that true greatness that he becomes a must have for the Lakers or any team that's out there shooting him. Or when we're talking about, you know, all time greatest coaches that has elevated him amongst the elite of the elite. And it's right here at this time where he could let this thing get to him or he becomes the Zen master that he is and ultimately manipulates us in his favor. Yeah. The, the managing of egos of the Chicago Bulls team is this is to me. Even as a Lakers fan, this was Phil's best work. I, what he did with the Lakers, by the time he made it to the Lakers with Shaq and Kobe, Phil was already Phil. Phil already had the respect of everybody inside of the league because he had already won six championships. To me, though, when you've got guys like Michael, when you got Scotty, you got Rodman, hell, even Horace Grant, BJ Armstrong, Steve Kerr, not to mention Reinsdorf and Kraus. And trying to manage all of these egos, the management part of the team, to me, was even more impressive than the offense. And can we please get Phil Jackson to sit down for like a 10 episode documentary explaining how in the fuck the triangle works? Because like I've literally read books about this and I still don't understand how the triangle works. I think the only people on the face of the planet that knew how the triangle worked are Phil, Michael and Kobe. They were the only three. I think the triangle is just really is just it's for that third eye for the Zen. I mean, you have to really open that up to get that enlightenment. And we're talking about, you know, how vilified Krauss is into this thing. Uh, Maybe a lot of that plays back to the attitude that Phil approached this with, that he was going to manipulate this, that he takes this hard stance and he becomes really like the Gandhi sense. You know, I'm not going to raise my hand in violence against, you know, that uh, that who attacks me. 
uh, I'll channel this through and use this energy. Yeah, but that, that that's definitely the second three-peat. The first three-peat, you do not have Zen Master Phil in any way, shape, or form. You've got Phil on the bench just screaming and hollering. I remember after Michael went to go play baseball, Phil Jackson and Scottie Pippen, they did not get along at all. It was almost like Michael was the buffer between the two. I, I can recall. Well, you got to feel there's a lot of pressure there. You know, they're both looking to succeed here. I mean, this is that moment where this is all on Scotty's shoulders. And as we would come, you know, begin to see played out here inside the documentary, you and I or anybody that was, you know, so involved with this back then, you knew that Scotty was, I mean, he was that powder, that powder keg ready to explode. Was he going to be able to handle this? I vividly remember some of those images, you know, going into the playoffs and Scotty having to go to that bench and both of them just having the veins just, you know, you could tell they were about ready to give. And it, it was a very thin line to give between these two. So that's why I'm talking about the importance of how he handled himself here and reinvented himself to become this Phil Jackson, that next chapter and elevate himself that we remember. The other guy that's not talked about nearly enough, at least not at this point, is Tim Floyd. Not only does Phil Jackson know this is the last year that you're going to be here and then we're blowing this thing up. They also know that Tim Floyd is going to be the next coach. I, I remember Tim Floyd when he was at Iowa State, and Iowa State, for some reason, thought that they were going to keep Tim Floyd. When everybody and their brother knew a year and a half ahead of time that Tim Floyd is going to be the next head coach of the Chicago Bulls. I mean, when you're the heir to that throne, <laughs> I mean, can you blame anybody? Well, the, the only question was, what in the hell are the Chicago Bulls going to look like when Tim Floyd gets there? Because everybody, it was it's almost like AEW and the launch of AEW. All these contracts all came due at exactly the same time. Michael's working on one-year deals. Phil's on a one-year deal. We hear this great story about Reinsdorf getting on an airplane, flying to Montana, gives Phil $6 million. Krause is pissed. Like... There was a time, well, I guess the time is right now. If this was happening right now in 2020, LeBron James would just walk into Jeannie Buss's office and say, fire Mitch Kupchak. Like, straight up, that's that's all it would take. Why didn't Michael ever go up to Reinsdorf and just say, you have to get rid of Jerry Krause? I don't understand it. But again, I, I, I honestly believe, that I don't think that's in his M.O., he doesn't want that. You know, it, that's Jordan saying, OK, you know, if, if you are in his way, if you are that obstacle, he wants you around. But you so that say that, he, he, he kiboshed the Pippin trade. We're going to talk about that here in just a little bit. I mean, Jordan's the one that kiboshed the Pippin trade and said you, you, you cannot trade Scottie Pippen. I, because he sees that true value. And in Jordan, and you see that in this documentary where he makes that, you know, that he draws that clear line. There's office and there's people representing and getting things done on the floor. And he didn't mix a lot of those two sides. And he talks to that quite a few times. And it doesn't go into great detail about it, but he drops those lines every now and then. That, hey, this basketball on this side. Even And he takes Scotty to task on this, you know, where he pretty much puts it out there. I don't care what you're doing with the office. You are being selfish to your teammates and what we are accomplishing on this floor. And he talks about that. 
Well, and Michael also, he, he was very open about it, even at the time. I, well, we, they showed the interview right as the 97, 98 season's getting ready to start. And they asked Michael, what's the biggest obstacle that you guys are going to have going for a third championship? And he looks up at Jerry Krause's office and just kind of smiles. He didn't have to say it, but everybody knew exactly what he was thinking. Well, and, and he's using that inside of himself. That's his fuel. I mean, would they have loved anything? This would have this would have been the exclamation point for the office. For Kraus, okay, you know what? This is why I wanted to blow this thing up. We didn't win a championship. Now it's officially over. Jordan says this on he says it then, he says it now. It is our right. We have earned this to let it die on the floor. If we don't win, break it up, blow it up, start over. At the, at the time, he's in a press conference. You know, one of, one of his jokes, he's like, oh, I hear about rebuilding, rebuilding. Let us lose it on the floor. The Cubs have been rebuilding for 40 years. You know, he gets a big laugh from everybody. That's he how he right. felt about this. You know, it, he understood. You know, the office is there. This is him. This is his boys. This is his team, his floor, his city. Let them defend it. And he used what they were doing in the office to make sure his Damn sure that he was going to get it done. Well, I would just like to extend a, a very sincere thank you to Jerry Krause for blowing this team up because without that happening, Phil never goes to L.A. So, you know, I, I thank you, Jerry Krause. I appreciate that. Let's uh, let's talk about episode two, the, the Scotty Pippen episode. Um, I don't know if we necessarily learned a whole lot about Scotty Pippen throughout the course of this episode, but there were definitely some interesting tidbits that I had forgotten if I ever knew starting with Scottie Pippen being drafted by the Seattle Supersonics. Can you imagine how weird that would have been if that would have stuck? But no, Scottie Pippen actually goes to Chicago. The deal was already done before the draft, and evidently everybody knew about it except for Scottie Pippen. Scottie Pippen sitting there in a Sonics cap, and, and even one of the reporters at the draft is like, uh, you, you're going to Chicago. You, you have the wrong hat on. And Scotty's like, oh, 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 I do. Like, he's just completely clueless. Uh, but the thing that really goes understated also in that draft, probably the most important draft pick that Krause had put together at that point, he also drafted Horace Grant in that draft. And Horace Grant, when it came to getting past the bad boy Pistons, which we're going to talk about towards the end of this episode and certainly talk about next week, Horace Grant was vital in that team. This is where and this is where Krause really gets the credit for beginning to put this thing together. The, here comes your other big swingers, your marquee players inside of this thing to make that run. It, it, what's crazy about this, this is the team you're assembling to get over that Pistons hurdle. But it, in the in the real time, you're probably in. Yeah, you've got the Pistons on your radar. But more so, you're eyeing who's been whooping your butt in these playoffs is the Celtics. And then, could, then if you can get by them, you're looking at Showtime in L.A. Yep. And it's, it's, to have this all come together right here, and you talk about three completely different styles of basketball that you're trying to overcome. From the bad boys to the old school to the Showtime. You know, how are you going to put this, this nucleus together in Chicago to beat any of those? Yeah, and we haven't even made it to the Knicks yet. I mean, because those Knicks teams, my God, 
Once the Pistons went away, then you get the evolution of the New York Knicks, and they become the roughest motherfuckers on the block. And a big part of that was Charles Oakley, who was in Chicago, Michael Jordan's best friend on the Chicago Bulls, and he gets traded to the New York Knicks for an aging Bill Cartwright. But the Bulls really needed size. That that was not a very big team. And that kind of brings us back to the Spurs conversation, brings us back to that Houston Rockets conversation when Michael was gone. If you had a big center, a big dominant center in the middle, you could beat Chicago. They were a very, very small team. And Bill Cartwright gave them size, and they needed that badly. And then, of course, we would see Luke Longley later on in, inside of the, the six championships. But Bill Cartwright was pretty vital to that entire team. Uh, absolutely. And and then, as well, you still got a relatively young Bulls team, so you're also looking for locker room guidance, yeah. some wisdom along the line. You know, Horace Grant would eventually he would evolve into that. As we get towards these championships, he would kind of take on the role of a car. But at that time, you know, that's what he's brought in here for. Now, obviously, and here's another, you know, go back to episode one, just very quick. I love a little subtle mention and a little foreshadowing is in Jordan's sophomore year of the NBA, second year, obviously, when he gets hurt and he's on that restricted time. Oh, that's all in the second episode. Is it in the second episode? Mm-hmm. Okay. But it's early on as they're doing this transition. Okay. Before we really get into the, the meet with Scotty. Yep. But it's, it's John Paxson who, after Jordan hits a seven, has to hit the bench. There's 30 seconds left, and Paxson hits a game winner. And it, it, it just, it's that subtle little mention that lets you know that Paxson was there that early in this ride and how vital he would be to the early championship success of this team. Were you surprised that we didn't see more of Charles Oakley? I kind of want to hear more from Charles Oakley and, and his thoughts about those 90s Bulls teams and how he felt about going to New York. He's he is somebody as we're talking about and why I really love the style in this presentation. I like this jumping around to give us pivotal points inside the moments. So I, I'm interested to see if we get more is also with Pippen as we're going to dive in him a little bit here. But to see more from Oakley when we get into the heat that begins to brew between the Knicks and the Bulls and then relate what his time was like with Jordan because ultimately, you know, he's going to be the one that knows what's going on inside his mind, as you put over. I mean, they were best friends at this point. They understood one another. As a young Michael Jordan, you had Oakley pretty much as his handler, his protector. Yeah, and he needed one. Absolutely, because that Eastern Conference at that time was was pretty rough. It wasn't the pansy basketball that we see in the East right now, that's for sure. So let's talk about the money. Because that's all anybody wants to talk about right now. Scottie Pippen so underpaid. Get the fuck out of here. Stop it. Scottie Pippen signed that contract. And Jerry Reinsdorf even tells Scottie Pippen, if I were you, I wouldn't sign this contract. You may be selling yourself short. And he was right. But I thought Scotty did a real nice job of laying out exactly why he signed that seven-year contract for less money, especially towards the end of his run in Chicago than he could have gotten. Um, I don't feel too bad for Scotty Pippen. He still made over $200 million during his NBA career, a lot of that in Houston and Portland. Um, but Rick, he signed a seven year contract it, somewhere between 18 and $19 million after you get into incentives and everything. 
But everybody wants to make a big deal out of the fact that he was the 122nd highest paid player in the NBA in 1997. He was the sixth highest paid player on the Chicago Bulls at that time. He signed the contract. And everybody knew it was a bad contract, so much so that now the CBA now mandates that you can only sign a five-year contract at the most, and that's a four-year contract with a one-year option, just so this doesn't happen anymore. Scotty knew exactly what he was doing. I don't feel bad for Scotty Pippen, but I'm sure you do. Absolutely. not. I mean, I thought, yeah, they did. It, it was very nice of them to, to kind of put a you know, to put that spin on it and make him that he is doing this for the right reasons. It was there to protect his family. Uh, very emotional upbringing there. You got two individuals inside of your household, tragedy strikes, and they are, they're sucking wheelchairs. I didn't realize he was one of 12 kids. I, that in, was a new detail. I didn't and know. think of inside that inside of itself. You know, central, you go to central Arkansas, your deep south family there. Well, and much like Michael... He was the equipment manager when he first got there. He wasn't even good enough to make the team. I, I think that's got to be one of the things Michael and Scotty bonded over. They were both had that chip on their shoulder. Absolutely. Just even inside of his, his family lifestyle, put yourself, you know, what he probably seen his parents going through. Uh, deep South, still deep rooted aggression, racial tensions. Uh, is they're coming up here is is even Scotty himself growing up, what, you know, late 60s, 70s, what, you know, his brothers and sisters had all seen. And now you've got 12 of them. Yet the parents, that's 14. We don't know how the grandparents are involved. You have just little community inside of itself. And now somebody is getting to a level, to a platform where they were talking about money that they had never dreamed about. And now you're saying that he could sign this deal to secure all of those funds, those financials, that longevity, you absolutely can understand where he's coming from here. Well, and the other thing that I, I wish they would have talked about this a little bit, too. Yes, in 1997, Scottie Pippen was vastly underpaid. But was he underpaid in 1991 when he signed the contract? No, not really. He was paid a pretty exorbitant amount of money in 1991 but the problem is then the league skyrocketed, especially after the Bulls won that first championship and the NBA went international and the money just started flowing. Now, the only thing that you could say is Jerry Reinsdorf could have extended Scottie Pippen going into the 97-98 season and renegotiated that contract. They were allowed under the CBA at that time to renegotiate when there was one year left on the deal. Reinsdorf could have done that, but he didn't because Reinsdorf didn't renegotiate contracts and he made that very well known to everybody. He didn't renegotiate with Michael. He didn't renegotiate with Phil. This is why Michael was on one year deals at this point. So he would have to renegotiate every year. And as the salary cap was going up, so was Michael's salary. We'll talk about Michael's salary here in a minute, but I, I feel like this is a false narrative that is being pushed about how vastly underpaid Scotty was. When he signed the deal, it wasn't an awful deal. It was just outdated in about six months. Well, I guess you, when you, you step back and you take that look at it, Jarga, yeah, I mean, from that perspective, there's sound reasoning that, okay, we shouldn't you know, be attacking the ownership, general management in a sense. But... If, 
in reality, I mean, we're talking at six, seven years passing and someone's value to that franchise. You've seen it just greatly increase. And I think that is the bigger picture. And it's easy to say, OK, financially, because that's an understandable stat that people can relate to. And you can use that as your jumping in point, your talking points. But you got to believe somewhere inside for Scotty Pippen, it's about your true worth, your, your self-value. How much does this franchise believe in me? What am I truly worth to them? Am I one of these interchangeable parts? Or am I someone that is right there behind that they believe is right there behind Jordan? That's where you get into a case here. We were talking earlier about how now in free agency where we see this is a player's league as opposed to back then where, yes, it was the iron fist of the ownership. How much of this situation here and making the headlines with Scottie Pippen would that begin to turn those gears to get those agents behind this thing now to start getting in there manipulating systems where they're not going to let this happen to a Shaquille O'Neal? You know, who was also, you know, down there, you, you got this dynamic that maybe we had, I, I guess you'd seen a little bit with Showtime, but this is that dynamic. And that first time we see where we're considering two of the very best in the league at the time with Pippen and Jordan. Okay, now we got to get them on equal pay. You kind of seen that a little bit down there in Orlando because you had Penny and he had Shaq. And we know all, going back to a documentary style, the 30 for 30 with those two, how heated it was about who was going to be the Batman in the Robin in that situation. Uh, we have breaking news that is not in any way, shape, or form related to the Chicago Bulls. But if you're listening to this show, chances are you also enjoy the NFL. The Patriots have traded Rob Gronkowski and a seventh round pick to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers for a fourth round pick. Rob Gronkowski and a seventh for a fourth round pick to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. So Brady and Gronk have been uh, reunited. Uh, let's continue. Oh, oh, hold on. Let's get some more on that. Uh-oh. Get some more on that. Uh, also, this is a, a three- Three franchise move. Uh, WWE has requested that they include Mojo Rawley's inside of that uh, in an option to let the XFL out of their lease at Raymond James. Uh, we'll, we'll probably have to get the Green Bay Packers on the phone. I think they actually still hold the rights to Mojo. Uh, let's go back to the salary cap because uh, this just fascinates me. All right. People want to talk about the salary cap and how underpaid Scottie Pippen was. Well, you know, in 2020, the NBA salary cap, $115 million. In 1997-1998, the salary cap was $27 million. I just think about that. In, in, in 20 years, it has ballooned that much inside of the NBA. But here's where things really start to get a little bit heated uh, when it comes to the Bulls. The salary cap was $27 million. Michael Jordan was making $33 million because the way the CBA was at that time, there was no luxury tax. You could go over the cap as long as you were re-signing your own players. You couldn't go out in free agency and bring somebody in at that price, but you could re-sign your own players. So Michael Jordan was actually making more money than the entire Utah Jazz basketball team that they beat in 1997 and 1998. Meanwhile, Scottie Pippen is still tied into that deal where he's, you know, making $3 million. 
a, a stacked Utah Jazz team. Yeah, Carl Malone, John Stockton. I mean, yeah, Hall of Famers. You know, outside of you know, Stockton and Malone, you, you, then you've got Pringle All Stars. You got a Hall of Fame head coach. The Bulls I mean, team payroll in 97-98 was $61.3 million. So now if you're wondering why there is a luxury tax in the NBA, you can thank the 97-98 Chicago Bulls. And really, it's just Jordan. Because if you take Jordan off of that, you know, they're, they're right around the cap number. So, so, yeah. So if you're representation from behind Scottie Pippen, and you you know this, you know these numbers are out there. There's your fuel. Okay, where is my payday? You've gone way and beyond here for Jordan. Give me a little slice of that pie. And and I think what is going to be what's of intrigue here is going forward and seeing what kind of those influences were behind Scotty. And that's why I love that we're not just getting boom that part of the story right now that they're piecing this thing together for us. And I hope that they do start jumping back to certain pivotal points where Scotty might have been feeling that he was being slighted or, you know, resentment towards maybe not, maybe not Mike, but the franchise inside of itself. And I'm sure we're going to see a little bit here because it's well documented. It's been discussed in many a circles where there was very, you know, tense times between those two. Well, and Scotty was pissed and, and you know, Scotty was pissed. Scotty was hurt coming into 97, 98. And everybody knew that Scotty was hurt. Scotty had gotten hurt during the playoffs, and he should have went and had surgery right after the 97-98 season. But there's a quote, I don't have it in front of me, where Scotty's basically like, I'm not going to fuck up my entire summer to go rehab. You guys don't want me here. Otherwise, you'd be paying me. So fuck you. I'm going to get surgery right before the season starts. And that's what he did. And Michael was pissed. Michael even called Scotty selfish inside of the media. Tensions get very, very high. We saw Scotty during the the ring ceremony when they the first time they beat Utah. And Scotty comes out. He gives that great speech. He's looking very dapper in his three-piece suit. Hell, people even kind of thought that might have been a retirement speech. But what we would see in the coming weeks was Scotty requesting a trade. And, Rick, one of the things that very much goes under the radar that trade damn near happened without Michael going into the front office and saying, no, 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 no. You are not trading Scottie Pippen. Oh, absolutely. And this is where those frustrations be, you know, continue to go. You've got Jordan. I mean, this is where you see where he separates those two. And this is where, dude, I, I don't care what you've got going on with the office. I've had those struggles myself. I keep them separate. This is about right here on the hardwood, what you do with this team. And by you going into business for yourself and bickering back and forth with them, you're hurting everybody else right here. And that showed early on inside that season. Yeah, the, the Bulls start off like eight and eight These are without Scotty for the first couple of months. And Jordan's just getting hammered. I mean, they're just beating him down wherever they possibly can. This deal almost happened. Scotty Pippen almost became a Boston Celtic. Of all the teams, I mean, like, that makes me nauseous. I don't even like Scottie Pippen. He probably would have been perfect in Boston because I could have hated him for more years. Um, But what Chicago was really after inside of this trade was they wanted, there were three lottery picks. There were two that year 
and one the next year that would have been included in this trade for Scottie Pippen. Obviously, if you're Jerry Krause and you know you're going to blow this team up, having three lottery picks in the next two years is a very, very tempting offer. They wanted Tracy McGrady. And they thought that if they could pair Tracy McGrady with Michael Jordan, they could convince Michael to stay because they could just pay him whatever the hell they wanted to pay him. Rick, I would have loved to have seen that. Give me Michael Jordan and T-Mac all day, every day. I think that would have been a match made in freaking heaven. I think what's more intriguing there is the other picks, you know, what direction they would go to bring in those other pieces of the puzzle. Uh, again, you know, it's just speculation. I, I think that was something that was so magnificent and magical inside of that Bulls dynasty. Uh, sure, I mean, you've got where they're butting heads, but you're going to have that with personalities. Uh, when you when you have that same desire, that same goal, you know, brothers are going to fight. Could you recapture that dynamic? Uh, Michael Jordan isn't the easiest person to you know to get along with there. So as you're putting those pieces of that puzzle together, you have to be very careful and watch your step along that way. Well, we talk about injured Scotty with his foot injury and and fuck it. I'm not going to blow my whole summer rehabbing. It was a good summer, man. Everybody you're watching the home run race. Uh, what else? Was it like Woodstock 2 or some shit? <laughs> I, I, I think that the reason Michael took this so harsh was because then they get into injured Jordan. And how Michael handled it, which you brought up earlier, his second year in the league, he breaks his foot. I think it's a summer I've lost my virginity. Wow, really? Late bloomer, huh? So, Jordan, when he gets injured, his second season. See the girls in my hometown. He ends up going back to North Carolina to, to rehab his foot injury. And he starts playing one-on-one. And then he starts playing two-on-two. And then he starts playing three-on-three and four-on-four, five-on-five. Rick, before Jordan came back, he was playing like full hour and a half long games down there at North Carolina. And the Bulls didn't even freaking know it. Like, you want to talk about a complete difference versus 2020. Like, if Kevin Durant was like, you know, just going to the local Y and playing full-on freaking pickup games, the Brooklyn Nets would be flying in choppers with freaking spotlights and be like, uh-uh, you're getting the fuck out. They, they, were, they were talking they weren't even going to let Durant play in the Olympics this year. Let alone just going down playing pickup games at Carolina. I mean, what were we doing there? How did we connect with society back then? You had the dial-up modem, right? I mean, you were... It's just crazy to you me. Were, you were overly connected if you were at, what, 56, 6K? You yeah. dial up. Eh, eh. I mean, that, and nowadays, you'd have immediately somebody posted this to social media. You'd have full-blown channels dedicated to this thing on, on YouTube. But they could keep it under wraps here because everything was protected. It was personalized. But Michael wanted to come back. Michael wanted to play. Michael had told the city of Chicago, we're going to make the playoffs every year. I'm here because I'm Michael Jordan, and that's what we're going to do. And he wanted to live up to that deal. So he ends up coming back early, and the Bulls finish 30-52. and Claim the number eight seed in the playoffs. Yeah, 30-52. and It sounds like something that would happen in the East nowadays. 30-52, and somehow make the playoffs. But as a reward... You get the number one seed Boston Celtics, the 85-86 Celtics that started four Hall of Famers on that team. People want to talk about the big three. Go look at that freaking Celtics team. Absolutely stacked. And they take the minutes restriction off of Michael, 
because they only were letting him play seven minutes. Michael's pissed about only playing seven minutes a game because he wants to make the playoffs. That's where that big Paxton shot that you mentioned comes in. But when the playoffs start, they lift the minutes restrictions. And holy shit, it is a caged bull coming out. 49 points in game one, 63 points in game two, which is still to this day a playoff record. But they, they kind of leave out the fact that they lost both of those games. In fact, the, the Bulls actually got swept in that series because that Celtics team, one of the greatest teams in NBA history. When we're building up, we don't have to talk about those details. We, we're taking the positive. This story doesn't get any better knowing that they got swept by the Celtics there. Larry Bird's putting him over. I've never seen anything like that. Hell, even Magic was putting him over. For the freaking Celtics series. Like, I I can't imagine Magic Johnson sitting there watching this series. Well, if I'm Magic Johnson, I am glued to this thing. I'm looking at what Mike's doing and being like, thank you. You just showed me every which way to go expose these guys. Yeah, the only problem was Magic wasn't Mike. I mean, Michael Jordan's doing things throughout. Magic Magic Mike, I see what you did there. Magic Mike, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, but but back then, 84-85... 85-86. 85-86. Magic's better than Mike in everyone's eyes. So Magic Magic knows, hey, this kid could do this. Wait till what Showtime and Magic's going to bring. Yeah, that didn't work out so well for him in 91. <laughs> uh, 63 points. Game two. Still a playoff record to this day. Is that the best individual playoff performance that you've ever seen? Man, it's... I guess maybe in the moment here with everything so fresh, it'd be hard pressed. I mean, I have to sit and think about it. I mean, to me, the two have got to be, they're both Jordan. It's either the 63 points against Boston or the flu game. Either one of those. I mean, that flu game is ridiculous. Hell, he he had one against Portland where he hit six threes in the first half. And that's when you get that iconic shot of Jordan just being like, I don't know, man. They just keep going in. Yeah, to me, I, you know, just like in my wrestling, I'm about the, the, the moments. So I obviously I'm not sitting here trying to to one up Jordan. Those are all magnificent. I'm just thinking of other things inside of basketball, uh, the NBA. Uh, Miller going off against the, the Knicks choke inside the game. Garden. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's probably the one that comes to mind to put up there in that conversation. Yeah, that Nick, that man. I bet you Big Ray just hurt himself. If he if he heard us talk about that game, he would probably start like cutting himself like a little emo kid. Positive for Big Ray here. Going way, way back to, what was it, 70s with the Knicks? And who was their big man that came wobbling out on the floor in the minute, in the last minutes when they needed it? That was, suppose he was done for the series. Oh, I can't say his name now. Damn it. Tip him on. Willis? Well, anyway, I hate when we're not prepared like that. But Well, that's what happens when you just throw stuff at me without yeah. ever talking about it. This isn't even an official show, so all right, we're doing our best thing here. <laughs> yeah, right. Willis Reed. Uh, but yes, Reed. That's what I had. Willis in my head. All right, I was, I was partially right. So Reed. Yeah, I mean, so you think about those moments that come to define, you know, playoff basketball. Absolutely, and Jordan's. You know, it, if we had to list one through five, Jordan's going to be on there two or three times. Yeah, yeah. I think the other one I put up there is the uh, the Kobe alley oop to Shaq. That, that was freaking iconic, too. Um, and then we kind of wrap things up. 
of episode two, wrap up this week's episode with Jordan's family life. They, they start talking an awful lot about James Jordan. They also talk a bit about Larry Jordan, Michael's older brother. Rick, we talked at the beginning of the show about how guarded Michael is, um, especially in a 2020 context. When, when you look at early Michael, he was very outgoing. He would do the media interviews. It wasn't until he stepped away to play baseball and then he returns. And when he returned, he's like LeBron. He's got like a full entourage. He's got freaking security. Might as well have been Secret Service. Did that all start when his dad passed? Is that what really like flipped that switch for Michael to where he became so guarded from the media? I wonder if it was more of a case. Uh, I mean, obviously, you have the tragedy and everything with losing his father. And it's going to be interesting going forward to see and now that we're seeing a little bit of inclusion of family of how deep they're going to go into that aspect. Yeah. I'm very curious. And, and how open that we are seeing Michael Jordan, Jordan early on into this thing and how relaxed he is. I'm curious that, if he's going to clamp up that inside of itself is a story to be told on its own. Right? There's so much there. I, at this time, I want to save that until we get in to kind of see what they're going to let us see, how they're going to pull that curtain back. I also wonder if it's a case of, you know, stepping away. Uh, you know, there's all of the rumors in Indiana that that Jordan, maybe it wasn't the that he lost the passion for basketball, that we could have been talking about to bring this back around. We were talking about him earlier, a Pete Rose scandal. Mm-hmm. Where it was, okay, man, we, we can contain this thing right now. Let's step away before this gets out of hand. We'll open up the door later on. So and I'm not saying it was, hey, go do go play baseball. I think that was just Jordan saying, you know what? I'm, I got to do something. If that would have taken off, you know, he maybe never would have come back. But you do have this opportunity. The league greatly needed him at that time. You've seen the uh, incredible, I mean, just shattering decline inside of the NBA in that brief window just by taking Michael Jordan out of the picture. So it was everything. They needed him to come back to restore the NBA to the, that greatness that they had had and to elevate it once again to another level. Uh, there's so much. And maybe that he saw a completely different world when he went to baseball because they were completely different dynamics and different landscapes. I, I'm more, and When they talk about that transition – why Chicago? I, I know this is I was sitting here through the show. He's putting over. This is his city. That was his team. And he's building it there. But was there any intrigue to go somewhere else to, to see if he could test the waters with another management group? Or how did that play into coming back? Or how did everything involved here? Well, and part of the problem is when we go back to that CBA, the league wasn't formatted that way. Like it is now, like for the last two, three years, we saw the Lakers were clearing cap space because we knew they wanted to make a run at Anthony Davis. So they're clearing cap space so they can lure Anthony Davis in. There was no team that was trying to set aside $20 million so that they could make an offer to Michael, hoping that maybe they could lure him away from Chicago, mostly because Chicago could pay them so much more money than any other team. Hell, Michael was making more than most of the entire teams in the league's payroll. I'm not talking about inside of basketball. I'm talking about the White Sox organization. Oh, gotcha. So I, I can I can greatly understand why he wants to keep those roots. He knows but, that city. But he could do no still wrong. Reinsdorf. It was still it was still the same ownership. 
that's what I'm talking about. I know we got a different general manager, but you're still dealing with the same, you know, philosophies and ideologies and all that. You would think, and I get that there is that safety net. I know this city. If I go out here and bomb, they're going to love me because I brought them all these championships. But I'm interested. This is something that I really don't know that whole lot about. I've never taken the time to research. I've never thought about it until, you know, sitting down here, we're talking. That's why we talk things out and getting into this documentary. What other suitors were out there? Did he look at, hey, man, you know, man, Michael Jordan and pinstripes? You know, the potential that, you know, he coming up through that minor league system. Uh, anywhere that he would think about those, any franchise inside of baseball, obviously you're sending him somewhere to play in the minors, but what is that going to do for the energy inside of your system and the notoriety and your merchandise all the way around? You know, what were the plays? What other plays were at hand to bring in Michael Jordan? Yeah, that's something I hope, I hope they dive into that inside of itself. Well, I tell you what I'm looking forward to. I'm looking forward to episode three. Because episode one was about Michael Jordan. Episode two was about Scottie Pippen. Episode three in the trailer that I saw, we're going to be talking about the bad boy Pistons. And if only there was a connection to the 97th, 98th season to the bad boy Pistons. Oh, wait, there was this young kid who played for the bad boy Pistons by the name of Dennis Rodman, who hadn't completely lost his freaking mind while he was in Detroit, but boy, was it long gone by the time he got to Chicago. I cannot wait, man. I, were you a Rodman guy? I was a huge Rodman fan. Well, I, you know, you, how couldn't you be? Especially oh, in, there in, was a lot of people that Rodman just rubbed I the wrong way. No, I mean, for, you know, for our, for our youth, I mean, we love I mean, you look at that transition through society and that outlandish character and you saw it across the board into all genres from music to, to Hollywood, to television. Well, you were looking you, you for described those him characters. as a rock star earlier, and I thought that was just perfect. Well, I mean, hell, this is the Dennis Rodman is the attitude era of the NBA. Absolutely. And they, they, they coincide running side by side with one another. And, and this is what you're going to drop in here to the unquestionably the greatest dynasty of its generation of its era, but questionably of all time in the NBA. And now you're putting, you're dropping in here in the attitude era, but even going back to that, I mean, the Pistons were, they were getting away from everything you thought you knew about the eighties, you know, the, the flipped up collars and the big hair and, you know, the sell, you know, the go, go, go business hustle. Detroit we're, we're, basketball. Yeah, it, we're getting these these hard knocks, hard nose, throw down SOBs. And outside of Rodman in this thing, man, I really hope we were talking about, you know, those key elements, those players that complemented the Jordans, the Pippins, and bringing in a Rodman like this. I want to know about banging down in the blocks. Yeah. How was it for Bill Curry? How was it for Goris Hand, you know, who is now yeah. coming into his own? Give, give me like a full hour-long episode of nothing but Bill Lambeer talking about how he beat up Michael Jordan. I mean, just straight beat him up. Well, how did Michael develop that killer mid-range jump shot? Because he wouldn't go in the paint with Bill Lambeer. Dude, that, that is what popped me as we're getting these teasers looking forward is you see Michael Jordan hitting the bench press. And they're like, he never did this before. He didn't have to. But to get over this this obstacle, this mountain of the Pistons, you, you got to start getting real. You got to start hitting them gains. Bill Lambeer, one of my favorite favorite NES games, Super Nintendo game, Bill Lambeer basketball. 
It was played on a battlefield with guns and robots. It was like Terminator <laughs> basketball. That's how you describe Bill Lambeer's style of play. If Bill Lambeer was playing in 2020, how many seconds would it take him to foul out? Well, I, I, he'd probably get through the first couple minutes of the first game, and then they just drop, you know, 10 game suspension. I mean, look, we go across the board. I mean, I don't think he would make match? it a minute. I think he would be out of the game, like fouled out within 45 seconds of the game. I mean, what do you talk about? And it, which would be so interesting to it, these fantasy matchups to see that bad boys team versus the Splash Brothers in the modern day. Warriors. Oh my gosh. Well, well, the one that everybody's talking about right now, of course, is LeBron. Because, of course, as we're doing a documentary about Michael, we've got all these kids that didn't actually get to see Michael, that just heard the legend of Michael, that are convinced that LeBron James is the greatest back- basketball player that's ever lived. Could you imagine LeBron trying to drive the lane on the bad boy Pistons? Not happening, bro. You'd be picking your ass up off the floor. I really believe when we do step back and we look at those parallels, you could probably and I and this is not taken away from the Brian. You know, what you what you really do when you're measuring somebody's overall through the different generations, their value is if they could go in different spots. And I, LeBron could; he'd be a much different player. Yeah, much different player. Much different. I but you know you really you take him and put him back in that '90s. He might not get above uh, like a Scottie Pippen level. And that's not an insult. We're, we're talking about Scottie Pippen who, as time's gone on, at, you know, back then he was ranked amongst the top 50 of the greatest all time. He's still within that 75 range. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's not a knock in any way, but the style of pay, play was so drastic into it. You know, the, of the modern era, when we make those comparisons, I, I think Kobe, Kobe would have been okay back then. Yeah, He would have had to muscle up a little bit and get a little more aggressive in his style. But I think he would have been okay in that Jordan form. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. But I, I think people underestimate how rough, like even that 85-86 Celtics team, like Kevin McHale is a surefire Hall of Famer. You know what else he is? A dirty, rotten bastard who would shove his elbow into your ribs if you reached up to grab a rebound. Like, it was just the game was very, very different then. I mean, Larry Bird? Yeah, he could shoot the hell out of a three. He'd punch you right square in the fucking mouth, too, if you you ran it, you know? Like, those Celtics teams were absolutely no joke. Neither were those bad boy Pistons. It's going to be fascinating to watch this thing as it kind of plays out. Any final thoughts before we wrap this thing up and uh, go home? I would say, you know, tremendous out of the gate. The excitement. I think it's, it could surpass what I had going into this thing. Didn't let me down in the least bit. Uh, geared up, ready to go for the next round here. This is going to fly by. I already, I'm already, if there is a disappointment, it's that it's only five weeks. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of wish it was 10. You know, to see you can digest it even more because there's a lot of stuff that happened we didn't even have a chance to talk about. You know what I you know what I would like how we usually see on some of these things when you see it like you, you know me man I, I love my my bad reality television I and mean, this isn't that by any means but how they do them wrap up shows afterwards I like to see them get everybody together. Oh wow yeah and and have a little powwow yeah that'd be fun I don't like know the logistics behind that yeah I don't know the logistics behind that but. That'd be pretty cool. 
So that's going to wrap things up for this week's edition of the show. Thanks for listening. And if you haven't yet, please hit that subscribe button. Then visit the other platform that you may not be listening to, whether it be the HTM Podcast Network, still online, hittingthemarks.com, hackerhameen.podbean.com. Huckleberry, why don't you plug Hot Tag? Because you went through a different host site, and I can never remember what in the hell it is. Well, we've got a soft launch going on on our own platform there. Right now, we are fully focused on driving viewers through uh, hackerhameen.podbean.com. But you are correct. Uh, We do have our our second tier, second level platform that we are sharing the program on, and that is anchor.fm slash hot tag wrestlecast. So we're still, we're kind of still learning our way over there. We're, we're building up our other social media platforms. So you can go across all those Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and just do a quick search for the hot tag wrestlecast. Uh, we're building all those up and believe me, I was, I was blown out of the water uh, by the response from the first week from the show downloads across the platforms of social media interaction. Uh, so very humbled, very grateful for everything. Our guest. Uh, Chris Silvio got us going out of the gate. Ryan K. Bowman was also on that show with us. Second episode just dropped this afternoon. Please go check that out. Some tremendous content from uh, Dr. Man Beast. I mean, this guy is so he's so bright and ahead of his time that between wrestling matches, he went out and got his freaking doctorate in physical therapy. So he knows what he's talking about. Uh, Man Beast has also joined us. He's, uh, I guess, you know, he's a big seat to fill in with with you over on Mondays inside the locker room uh, but he, he's pulling it he, he's showing what he can bring to the table this week completely blew me away Brent, Brent. Ben lays out this epic booking strategy for AEW and then just like that Man Beast takes it to the next level so there's some quality quality programming going on right now so be sure to check that out I will not be doing any more quality programming outside of this. And, you know, I, I probably end up doing a double or nothing review with MSG, maybe a takeover with Bello. But so so you're done with quality programming. So you are coming back to talk WWE. Yeah, there you go. There you go. I can't wait to talk about Nia Jax and Kyrie Sane. Oh, boy. What a fantastic shit that was. Uh, but New Japan still kind of up in the air. But I mean, if you want to check out Destino, you can find us uh, across all social media platforms at Destino Pod. Um, and hopefully sooner or later, New Japan starts doing shows again. I, at least we hope, because life kind of sucks without New Japan. How about that for some product placement. There you go. Get your game, ladies and gentlemen. Be like Mike, like Mike, like Michael Jargo. We will talk to you next week back here. Running with the Bulls, episode two. Thanks for listening, guys. We'll talk to you soon. I've had the 